Good morning and welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I know it's always going to be a problematic day when my first question is, it's Wednesday, right? It's, it is Wednesday. Um, I've had this problem for the last year and a half. Uh, our, our guest today is uh, one of our uh, longtime friends, uh, early adopter of the Bulwark Podcast, uh, Ben Wittes. Ben, did, first of all, good morning. Good morning. Have you had this problem in the, over the last year and a half, that this whole temporal problem where sometimes you go, is it Thursday? Is it, is it, is it really only Monday? Do you have oh, this problem? I woke, up this, I woke up this morning thinking it was Thursday and, uh, uh, yeah, I, I don't really have a good sense of time anymore. I right. do know the difference between weekdays and weekends and yes. beyond that, that's about kind of about it. Yeah, that's where I'm at because on on weekends I don't have to get up early and do a newsletter and do a podcast. So that 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 experience of being able to sleep in a little bit kind of defines the day. But sometimes if you've been working all weekend or d- did something over the weekend, um I have this weird thing on Monday afternoon where it hits me like it's only Monday? We have the whole week to go. <laughs> Hasn't this been going on in any case? So um, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Benjamin Wittes is the editor-in-chief of Lawfare, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. And I want to talk to you about the midterms. I want to talk to you about Ukraine. Uh, I want to talk to you about uh, the possible, because I know you have some thoughts about uh, how the uh, how Roe versus Wade is going to play next year. But before we do all of that, uh, I, I know that that you knew Fred Hyatt, who is the who was the uh, editorial page editor of the Washington Post, who uh, just tragically passed away at the way too young age of sixty six uh, this past week. So, could you talk to me a little bit about Fred Hyatt and the way that he's being remembered? Yeah. So, uh, Fred, I, I worked with Fred very closely for uh, nine years. I guess uh, I was the last hire at the Washington Post by Fred's predecessor, Meg Greenfield. And so we worked together as colleagues under Meg until Meg's death. And then uh, Fred took over for her. So I worked under Fred for, I guess it was seven years um, uh, before I left the page. Uh, So, you know, we worked very closely together at a very formative time for me uh, intellectually. And so just at a personal level, I was very fond of him and thought the world of him as, a, as an editor um, and as a, as a human being as well. But I, I think the, for the purposes of the bulwark, the important point about Fred Hyatt is that uh, this was somebody who, and actually about the Post as an institution, the editorial page of the Post as an institution, this is an, an, an institution and a person who led it that really modeled a lot of the behaviors that the bulwark has tried to represent uh, in the years of its existence. That is to say, uh, a, a very fierce resistance to party labels. Um, the, the post is, you know, uh, despite some sort of baseline liberal commitments, is very independent politically. It really represented and Fred really believed in and cultivated a, a genuine ideological diversity, both on the editorial page itself and on 
the op-ed pages of the paper, which uh, both under Meg and Fred were, you know, despite the Post's kind of reputation as a you know, liberal paper, was the home of a lot of great conservative writing. And almost more important and more spiritually important than that, Fred really believed in and modeled the idea that an editorial page should be internally ideologically diverse, should argue about things, uh, should, you know, it shouldn't be like a, you know, like the, a sort of reflexive knee-jerk liberal, like the New York Times, or the kind of, kind of vanguard of the movement Jacobinism of the Wall Street Journal, but it should (laughs) actually be a kind of, of, place where a reasonable person can kind of go for an issue by issue sense of the right and wrong answers and hard policy choices that people and the country face. Uh, And, you know, that was rare when Fred took over the page uh, in 2000 or 1999, I forget which. And it was essentially it's essentially unheard of in our life and letters now Mm -hmm. uh, to the point that, you know, you guys have been expelled from the conservative movement, you know, and that, that is a kind of schismatic instinct that Fred uh, never had. uh, And he really, I think modeled exactly the kind of democratic dialogue that the country needs and is losing touch with. Well, you made a couple of points about him in your podcast uh, in in lieu of fun, including the fact that the Post has really only had two editorial page editors since the Watergate era, which is really extraordinary, you know, given the the turnover we have in the media. But you also described Fred Hyatt as someone who cared about democracy before it was cool. You talk to me about that because you 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 mentioned that that the Chinese ambassadors would sometimes call up to complain about things that were on the page, and 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 he and he always took their calls. Oh, always. And uh, so Fred and I had this joke that whenever the host would run an editorial about human rights in China, and it did it all the time because Fred actually and and when we say Fred here, we mm-hmm. actually have to include Jackson Deal. I mean, Mm -hmm. one of the things that Fred did is he surrounded himself with people who were immensely knowledgeable and had incredible depth and resources on a lot of issues. And so Fred's commitment in the human rights sphere was personal, but it was also reflected in having a deputy editorial page editor like Jackson. And so Fred would write these editorials you know, about human rights in China. uh, And the Chinese ambassador would call him and intone, you know, the Chinese people are very disappointed in you. (laughs) And he could always uh, take the call uh, and politely listen and give exactly no ground. And it it was an effort, you know, that happened on a regular basis by the Chinese embassy to intimidate him. Uh, and I don't know why they thought it would intimidate him, but uh, he regarded it with contemptuous amusement. And it became a little joke between us that I have to go accept 
the Chinese people's disappointment in me, um, <laughs> which, which meant I had to take a call from the Chinese embassy. And eventually, when I would really like an editorial that he'd written on a human rights issue, sometimes even not one involving China, I would just say to him, hey, Fred, the Chinese people are very disappointed in you. <laughs> and that was uh, a way of, of, way of saying, you know, a great editorial. Um, uh, Fred cared about democracy a lot uh, way before it was cool. And it was one of the, I think, great disappointments of his life as a citizen that that commitment had to come back to be about this country. He spent yeah. time in Moscow uh, as a reporter, uh, and he was always, while he was a, a very deep human rights advocate and made common cause with the human rights community on many, many issues, he always harbored a certain criticism of the human rights community for not caring enough about democracy, right? But, hmm. You know, um, and uh, he and I talked about that a lot because there was a it was a mutual concern over over a number of years. And I do think that as democracy at home came to be a real concern, that was a, 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 a real sorrow for him. And in a way that he had been the sort of person who would hire Ann Applebaum to think about overseas democracy issues, never thinking that we would have to think about those issues domestically. So yeah, I think he, I, I think it was a commitment before it was cool that he was sorry to have to think about here. You, you described him as a fierce man with a gentle soul, which is, which is rather striking, but he was, he was, you know, late in his life, uh, very fierce um, in in pursuing the case of Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post uh, columnist who was murdered by the Saudis. He really orchestrated um, the, the the pressure campaign against the Saudis, uh, keeping that uh, keeping that issue alive and you know in front of mind. So, talk to me a little bit about that because I mean, there's a perfect example of of how he would you know fiercely advocate for a position that he felt about passionately. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, Jamal was one of his writers. Um, and uh, so there was, I, I do think the Post had separately from Fred's individual human rights commitments, which were very mm -hmm. real, uh, the Post actually had an institutional interest in that, that, you know, uh, which uh, of a sort that, I, I don't mean that in a critical way, I mean it in a, in a positive way, that, you know, th this was a situation where the Saudis had had lured a post writer to uh, an embassy and hacked him to death. Right there was, a, I mean, uh, and I I do think there was a, a personal element of that that I I think you know Fred and this was somebody Fred knew and cared about. It was also um, uh, a incredibly offensive uh, thing to do from a traditional you know, human rights point of view. And uh, there was a a sense that if the I, I I and I never spoke about with Fred about the Khashoggi case, so I don't want to speak for him about it at all. But you know, I do think you know if the Post is not going to stand up in that situation and raise holy hell, who is? Yeah. Um, and so, uh, but it was a very typical 
example of, uh, I mean, it's an atypical example in that the case was extreme, but it was a typical example of how Fred would, would do things, uh, would stay on issues that other human rights issues that other people would forget. And, you know, the, uh, you know, there would be these times when, you know, the New York Times would run an editorial about a subject and the Post would run 20 over over three mm-hmm. years, right? And there was just a, a willingness to stay on and say, we are, uh, we are still watching. We're still demanding accountability for this. We're still the morally serious person doesn't stop caring about the mistreatment of Uyghurs. Um, and, and there was, and that was a, is a real commitment. Um, and, you know, I think something that he had a 360 vision that importantly, and I, again, I do think this is important to his sensibility linked human rights to anti-authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of human rights groups, there is a kind of disconnect. There's compliance with human rights norms, and then there's politics. And for Fred, there is compliance with human rights norms is an expression of liberalism, which is an expression with, of which democracy is also an important expression, right? And I, I do think there was a more coherently evolved worldview with Fred and with that page than there is in a lot of places. So let's, let's, let's follow up on, you know, the, the, the status of democracy right now. Um, your sense of the, the status of the investigation into January 6th, uh, there's, there is criticism, uh, of, you know, from, from some folks that they are not moving quickly enough. Of course, they're faced with a good deal of obstruction. Uh, also, um, a lot of, a criticism of the Department of Justice for not being more aggressive in pursuing Trump era crimes. I want to get your take on this. Let's start with the committee. Um, uh, how, how do you think they're doing? Are you satisfied that they are making progress? That it might actually make a difference? Okay, so let's uh, let's distinguish. But first of all, between two types of make a difference. I know it was, um, a, trick, it was a trick question. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I really, I, I really want to insist on this because, mm-hmm. as you know there is a a kind of a a cultural expectation that the pro-democracy forces have that every investigation is going to be the big one that's going to break it open. And if, you know, if Bob Mueller would just do X or if the impeachment would just do Y or if the one sixth committee would just do Z, then the whole thing would blow open. And I, I do not believe that. I have never believed that. And I don't believe it now. There, there is nothing that the one six committee is going to do that's going to make the wavering, maybe MAGA, MAGA adjacent world go, oh my God, they mm-hmm. really are anti-democratic. The president really was responsible for one yeah. six. There is nothing they can nothing. do that will do that. Mm-hmm. If you were open to that possibility, the summer of 2017 was all you needed. Yeah. Right. And so if the question is, is the one six committee going to going to blow the whole thing open and 
you know, save the day? The answer is, of course not. It's, yeah, that's, we, we, and, and we've that's seen this a, movie. We've right. seen this movie over and over again. I mean, that's kind of the story of the last five or six years is kind of waiting for that, that one moment. Okay, well, you know, if this happens, then uh, obviously there will be this result if this bright red line is crossed. But as you point out over and over and over again, we've seen exactly how this plays out and this won't be different. Exactly. And this is, you know, this is the, um, think of it as the, the, the emotional template of Watergate having this very long historical impact on our expectations, right? The right. tapes come out and Nixon's done. Right. Right. There's no tapes moment here. There is only the slow, incremental battle for democracy and democratic norms against political movements and figures that don't believe in them and are challenging them. In the context of that, the exercise of the 1-6 committee is very important, both because it will solidify the narrative of what happened. It will, it, you know, there's a lot of questions about what did and didn't happen, and we should answer those. And also because the process of, of getting those answers is itself valuable for its own sake. So there's a communicative purpose, there's an investigative purpose, and there's a purpose that if a democracy loses the habit of, of accountability, it loses the, those muscles really do atrophy. In that context, if the, so if, the, if that is the goal, I think the committee is doing very well um, and honestly, I think the, you know, if you had said a year ago that we could have a bipartisan committee that works in lockstep, that is uh, capable of holding recalcitrant people in contempt uh, in an expeditious fashion, whom the Justice Department then moves against, that is managing by doing that to compel cooperation with people that has interviewed uh, and deposed, you know, uh, more than 100 people. Um, I think there is a, you know, a business-like uh, uh, efficiency to a lot of what it is doing. We are seeing all the people who are defying it. We are not seeing all the people who are quietly showing up and giving depositions. Um, so will it be I do expect in the new year you'll see a series of public hearings. Um, but I think, by and large, if you have a reasonable set of expectations about what the committee should be doing at this point, uh, it's doing all those things. And it's I agree. doing them no. importantly in a fashion in which there is no meaningful daylight between the responsible Republicans who are appearing on it and the Democratic majority. And so I, I, I don't have a problem with the committee. No, I, I agree. And I think you, you've broken that down very well. He, can I just make a very small digression? Uh, latest development, of course, is that uh, Mark Meadows has uh, reversed himself and said he's not going to cooperate with the committee. And this seems to be in reaction, just reading the the various tea leaves connecting the dots here, um, in re reaction to the fact that uh, he's got a book coming out. Uh, he thought that Donald Trump was going to like the book. Donald Trump hates the book. Uh, therefore, he needs to find a way somehow to get back into the good graces in Mar-a-Lago. And maybe this is one of the ways of doing it. But here's my digression. 
who does Mark Meadows think is going to buy his book? <laughs> That's a I'm, really I'm, interesting question. <laughs> I mean, Chris Christie, you know, was on every single cable channel and sold, what, 2,000 books. Jonathan Last sort of dunked on him about that. But I wonder, who's going to buy Mark Meadows' books? Democrats are not going to buy Mark Meadows' books. Um, if he was hoping to have a big audience in MAGA land, I don't think so. I don't think that he's, you know, the Daily Wire folks are going to be embracing him. So he's going to be one of those guys that goes through all of this and finds out that he's a man without a country. There's no audience for someone like a Mark Meadows. I, so. I, I'm, I'm certain that's right. I do think uh, the lawyers for the committee will likely uh, read the book to see if there are any sure. statements in it that could constitute waivers of, of the privilege that he's asserting. It, it is generally speaking not a good idea to write a book while you are refusing to testify about the subject of the book. Um, but I'm not a lawyer for Mark Meadows, so look. Well, that's that's my understanding about executive privilege is that you you can waive it by sort of voluntary disclosures, you know, in in some other form. That if if in fact you've already talked about your communication, then you cannot you know, hide behind executive privilege when you're asked to testify about it, if you have already disclosed the information or some of that information. Yeah, I think, I mean, look, Mark Meadows has a significantly better privilege claim than Steve Bannon does. Uh, that said, many of us do not believe that when the courts finally rule on the question of who controls the privilege, that the answer to that question will not be that the question of the waiver of the privilege resides in yeah. the current president, not in the former president. And so I do think at the end of the day, Mark Meadows will probably have to testify. It may take a while to make it happen. Okay, so let's let's move on from from the January 6th committee, um, but sticking with democracy rule of, of law. Uh, the Department of Justice is, of course, moving head on, you know, prosecuting uh, many of the participants in in the insurrection. But there's kind of a drumbeat of impatience about the way that Merrick Garland is handling um, other cases from the Trump era. And, and I guess this is the, what I wanted to bounce off you is that clearly Merrick Garland wants to be the anti-Bill Barr. He wants to restore the norms to the Justice Department to a sense of normalcy. But is that the right response for the moment we're in right now? If democracy really does face this existential challenge, is Merrick Garland the right man for the moment? What do you think, Ben Wittes? Well, so look, Merrick is a friend uh, whom I've you know known for since before he was on the bench and when I was a very young reporter. Uh, so I'm perhaps not the most dispassionate person on this subject, but I would say... Let, let, let's break out a few questions here. On two of them, I'm going to be defensive of Garland. And on one of them, I want to, I, I, I do think there's some significant criticism that is warranted. It's interestingly not the criticism people are making. So first of all, are they being aggressive enough with respect to the 1-6 prosecutions? Mm -hmm. uh, they've in, indicted uh, almost 700 people. Um, uh, those numbers keep going up. The cases they're bringing, a lot of them are very serious. Um, uh, and uh, the cases that they have pled out or allowed to plead out tend to be the least serious. So, so they get resolved first. Um, but the Justice Department and the FBI has done uh, like amazing work in this far-flung, 
hundreds of potential defendant investigation. Hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, we've been covering a fair bit of it on Lawfare. Yeah. And um, I, I urge people to take a look at the a recent piece by, by Roger Parloff that kind of does a little bit of the demographics of these cases. The numbers have gotten more extreme since Roger did that piece. Um, so I would say on one six stuff, um, the reasonable question is not whether the Justice Department, you know, should be being more energetic in prosecuting one six people. It's really limited to are there crimes by political or or government echelon people. If you're a Capitol Hill rioter type, uh, insurrectionist, you're probably under indictment. So the question really becomes accountability for people who are not rioters themselves, but may have, you know, may have stoked it. Ultimately, Trump himself, of course. But yeah. uh, And there, I, I think people are assuming a crime and then demanding and then criticizing the Justice Department for not prosecuting those crimes. I don't know that any member of Congress committed a crime. I don't know that Donald Trump committed a crime. It is possible, you know, to encourage people to come to Washington, give incendiary speeches, and earnestly hope that that activity will produce violence and not violate the law. Yeah. And so would I love to see some indictments among among government, you know, White House members of Congress? Yes, I think that would be healthy. Am I confident that the evidence actually supports it? No, not at all. And so I think, you know, I understand people are frustrated, but uh, you know, the frustration there may be a frustration with the scope of First Amendment protection rather than with the Justice Department. On the So two more points. There's a second category of cases, which is all the things that people think Donald Trump should be indicted for, you know, Mueller stuff, all kinds of other things that came up over the course of the administration. We don't know what the Justice Department is or isn't doing, what thought has been gone into revisiting, reopening some of those cases. Uh, I think it is very possible that uh, Garland and uh, company, and we should include Lisa Monaco in this, and, uh, you know, uh, have made a decision that they are going to follow the regular order in all respects. And that means you don't reopen matters simply because a prior administration, because you think that these people must be corrupt. Um, it's not really the way the Justice Department works. I think we have to have an open mind about what they're doing. And uh, by the way, if they were actively investigating stuff, it would take forever. Um, so we wouldn't necessarily know. Uh, the, here's the area in which I think Hmm. Merrick actually deserves some criticism. And if he picked up the phone and called me and said, what am I doing wrong? This is the lec, which he hasn't done and won't do. Hmm. Here's the lecture I would give him. You know, the last time an attorney general came in under circumstances like this, it was a, a man named Ed Levy, uh, who Garland spoke about in his, when Biden nominated him. Uh, he was the attorney general under Gerald Ford. 
Uh, he's the greatest attorney general of the 20th century. Hmm. Most of what we think of as the norms of the modern Justice Department are personal creations of Ed Levy's. Uh, he was also the president of the University of Chicago and a very, very great legal scholar. One thing Ed Levy did is he was not a Bill Barr type about going, but he went out and spoke all the time. And he talked about the norms he was trying to create. He talked about what he was trying to do. He talked about reform of the FBI. He talked about trust in the department. Um, and the speeches of Ed Levy are so important historically that a, the University of Chicago Press actually published an academic press volume of the speeches of Attorney General Ed Levy. Hmm. And, you know, Merrick has done essentially no speaking. And I think that is wrong in every respect. I think if you're trying to build confidence in the apolitical nature of the Justice Department, uh, like Ed Levy, you need to be out there selling that idea, explaining how you're doing things. And, you know, Merrick grew up in a Justice Department culture that was typified by, you know, Janet Reno intoning, I cannot comment on a pending investigation in a kind of robotic fashion. And I think that's just totally inadequate for the current uh, environment. I think he should be out giving speeches on major themes like democracy, voting rights, uh, uh, accountability, uh, the norms of the department. And, uh, and I wish he would be uh, more I wish he would rethink the communications posture of the attorney generalship and look back to what Ed Levy was doing, which he has marked as his model for what he wants to do as a team. I mean, he has said that his goal is to restore the norms that Ed Levy, Griffin Bell, and Ben Civiletti, for whom he was a special assistant, created in the years after Watergate one of the elements of that was actually going out and talking about it. And I think he has not done that. You know, this is, this is so good, Benjamin. Can I give you some gratuitous advice? I think you ought to write that piece. I, I really think that you ought to write this out, <laughs> do an essay on this as an invitation to it, because it, it strikes me as that Merrick Garland uh, has the kind of mind that he's, he's certainly able to do these kinds of essays, speeches, dis descriptions. He's a very learned, very erudite legal scholar. And you know, as he thinks about his role, I think that the analogy with with Ed Levy, you know, might actually be pretty attractive to him. You know, figuring what is my role? Who do? What do I want? What kind of an attorney general? This is the answer to this. You know, well, so, and you know, so, so we you know. know it is attractive to him yeah. because when Biden nominated him, mm -hmm. uh, so I believe exactly. The first, yeah. I believe the first person to suggest that Merrick Garland should be attorney general was me. And mm -hmm. I did it in a tweet uh, before the election that saying if Joe Biden's elected, which I thought was, you know, I thought he was going to be overwhelmingly elected. So that, you know, shows you my political prognostication ability. But um, his first call should be to Merrick Garland and he should tell him it's his patriotic duty to come off the bench and yeah. uh, be attorney general. Uh, he's the only person I can think of who has the potential to be the Ed Levy of our time. Hmm. And uh, so that was my tweet sometime in October of last year. Um, 
when Merrick was nominated, he made a speech that said, uh, that talked about Ed Levy. And Lisa Monaco also mm. talked about Levy in her, con uh, her confirmation hearing. And so I, they're very aware of the Levy era. And by the way, like Ed Levy, Garland is a Chicago person. Um, uh, and so there's, a, there's, a, there's some deep threads going on there. They're missing something important about Ed Levy, which is this book that I'm staring at right now. Uh, you know, this is uh, fascinating. Um, and and they should there. There's that part of Ed Levy that they should get in touch with. He wrote those speeches by himself, by the way. Yeah. So speaking of your incredibly influential Twitter feed, uh, Ben, um, let's. I want to talk about let's talk about politics a little bit because you had a very contrarian tweet last week. Um, yes. You you wrote. I just want to register a dissent from everyone's certainty that the midterm elections a year from now are going to be a disaster. Obviously, a disaster for Democrats. National moods change, circumstances change, candidates matter. I really don't care about your doom casting. <laughs> okay, so convince me because I'm I'm sort of in you know team doom cast here. Look, looking at uh, looking at the atmosphere, looking at the uh, the landscape out there. Why do you think that it's not going to be uh, the disaster that conventional wisdom is now assuming it's going to be? Well, so I note that that I didn't say that. Okay. I didn't say that <laughs> I don't think it's going to be a disaster. I implied. I, I believe that it is always a mistake to forecast a year out. Well, that's true. And that we can very easily self-fulfill this prophecy. Um, that is, you convince everybody that it is inevitable that we're going to have, you know, a 30-vote Republican majority mm -hmm. in the House and senators... Josh Mandel and Eric Greitens and, Jeez. you know, um, Herschel Walker, Herschel Walker and, and Dr. Dr. Oz. Oz, right. <laughs> and, you know, that the, the, um, happen. and that if you, if you say that often enough and loudly enough, you demoralize enough people that you actually make it more likely. And I don't know, six months ago, Joe Biden's polls were very good. Now they're, not very good. I don't know what they're going to look like six months from now. I also don't know what the impact of the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade is going to be if they do that, I, which I think they're very likely to. I also don't know what the inflation rate will be. I don't know what the uh, job creation numbers will look like. I don't know, and most importantly, how bad Omicron is going to be or how uh, under control Delta is going to be. And if you give me one set of answers to all those questions that are all or mostly highly negative, obviously you're headed for a midterm route of the incumbent party. If you give a bunch of answers to those questions that are sunnier uh, for, you know, the average person's sense of the general environment, plus a bunch of really crazy individual candidates, plus the Supreme Court stepping in and saying, oh, by the way, if you have 
you know, any pro-choice instincts in your body, uh, uh, it's, uh, you have to get out and fight in your state legislature now and your, your, your local community now in a way that you've never had to do before. I could imagine a completely different electoral outcome. And so all I'm saying is there is a, uh, there is a risk of saying it three times and making it true. No, and I, I, get, I, I, would, yeah. I would much yeah, rather yeah. say to people, here are the stakes, here are the candidates, Joe, here are Joe Biden's and the Democrats' virtues and vices, here are the Republicans' virtues and vices. Uh, let's talk about choices. So I generally agree with the conventional wisdom, but your point, I think, is really important about, you know, circumstances change, moods change, and candidates matter. I mean, I can certainly remember when Republicans were poised to take control of the United States Senate, but I think it was back in, in 2010, if I'm remembering this correctly. Yeah, it's what a few and, Todd Akins and Christine exactly, O'Donnell Sure, exactly. Sharon Engel, and they managed, because they had some crazy candidates, managed to blow potentially winnable seats. And boy, that is certainly true. It's also true. That Republicans, I think, do have kind of a formula for success that you saw in Virginia, which is you, you know, kind of keep your distance from Trumpism. You run on some conservative type things. But Donald Trump is making it clear that he's not having that, that he is going to insert himself into this campaign as aggressively as possible. And he's going to put himself on the ballot. So all of those things are absolutely uh, true. And who knows what the job situation is going to be? We're in a strange economy that I'm not sure the people understand. I mean, the, the Washington Post is just now reporting this morning that 4.2 million Americans quit their jobs in October as workers continue to search for better opportunities in a tight labor market. So is that good news? Is that bad news? It basically would suggest that there are a lot of workers who are kind of optimistic about the, the job market. We don't know. OK, so let's talk about Roe. Um, you had, um, on your Tuesdays in lieu of fun, you featured my colleague, Sarah Longwell, and Sarah is arguing that her says her focus groups, um, are not showing a huge mobilized groundswell, uh, if Roe was overturned, she's not seeing a lot of energy out there in the pro-choice movement and you push back. So let's, let's talk about that. She's at, at the moment, she's just not seeing this massive backlash out there about the overturning of Roe, your take. Uh, so first of all, I take Sarah's, what Sarah hears in her uh, focus groups very seriously. And I do think to anybody who is confidently predicting a democratic upswell in response to what the Supreme Court may, be, may do, I take Sarah's response as an important cautionary note to that. That said, I, I think there's a possible explanation for that other than that the pro-choice theory of the case is wrong. And that is that um, if you're pro-choice in America and you are our age or younger, you have been hearing the pro-choice movement for our entire adult lives, saying, you know, Roe is hanging on the edge of the uh, edge of a cliff. Mm. Uh, you know, the if you don't vote for my favored candidates, the right to abortion hanging by a thread will go away entirely. Right? This is the mm. vocabulary of the pro-choice movement for literally my entire life. I mean, I'm a four years older than Roe v. Wade, but 
people tune it out. And one day this spring, it is likely to turn out to be true. And so imagine that you're a pro-choice woman in one of Sarah's focus groups. And if asked, how do you feel about abortion? You're pro-choice. But you never actually have to vote on that issue because the Supreme Court has taken care of it for you your entire life. So you kind of tune out a lot of abortion rhetoric because it just actually, you can vote for whoever you want and it doesn't matter on that issue, at least not very much. And then all of a sudden this spring, it matters. And we're going to learn something that I don't know the answer to, which is if you are, so we've known for a long time that if you genuinely believe that abortion is murder and that a human life is at stake, this is an urgent sense of a, a, an urgency politically for a lot of people. And that so pro-life voters are much more apt than pro-choice voters to be single issue voters. Um, and I think there's part of that is the success of the pro-choice movement and uh, pro-life movement in mobilizing people. But part of it is also the urgency and immediacy of the of the of the feelings created by the belief yeah. We're going to learn whether um, pro-choice voters, if something actually turns on their vote, feel, right. are, are as urgent about it. Well, that I is, mean, yeah. That is, I'm, people are, are more apt to uh, feel strongly, uh, to be single-issue voters when they feel like they're losing. Right. And the pro-choice side has been winning, has won for 50 years. Now you're going to have it lose all of a sudden. We're going to learn about a lot of suburban women and some suburban men, I think, too. Uh, do they, in fact, when that issue is really on the table, do they, in fact, care about other When it issues? becomes real. I mean, that's when, you know, people don't generally get aroused until they are really aroused. And this is going to be, I mean, there's been a shift in, in, in some, I think, public sentiment about abortion. But I think one of the things that you're going to see, another dynamic, um, is that there's going to be a race on the right for who is going to take the most extreme position. I think we've seen that, that dynamic. I mean, you can imagine the debate between, say, a J.D. Vance and a Josh Mandel. You know, I'm for it. You know, no abortions after 10 weeks. Well, you're a cuck. You know, it should be only after six weeks. Well, no, it should be an absolute. There should be no uh, exceptions whatsoever for rape or incest. And and you'll see that dynamic on the right, which I think will also uh, serve to, uh, to galvanize the issue. Because as, as we've said endlessly, you have a lot of people who are conflicted on this issue, a lot of people who are in the middle. But uh, those won't be the choices that are going to be on the table in 2022 and 2024. Okay, so Ben, in the time we have left, um, give me your take on the, the the crisis with Russia and Ukraine. I know that you have talked with with uh, with uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Alexander Vindman. You you work with him. We have 100,000 Russian troops on the Ukraine border. Uh, President Putin, I, we don't know what, what his intentions are. Does he want to invade Ukraine or or just milk the, the, the crisis? Long conversation with President Biden, who apparently kind of drew a pretty strong line, didn't give in much. So uh, what's what's at stake here? Um, what is what is the state of play, do you think? I, I think what's at stake is three things. Um, first of all, 
the credibility of the Biden administration. And, you know, the whatever you think of the question of whether we should be in Afghanistan, uh, there was some significant credibility loss associated with the way that withdrawal was handled. Um, and, you know, that's a conversation for another day. But here uh, you have a serious foreign policy crisis potential. And uh, the president uh, has personally engaged with it. The credibility of his administration is on the line. That's thing number one that's related to our our side of the, the street. Uh, uh, the second thing that's at stake is whether there's going to be meaningfully an independent Ukraine. Um, and, you know, Russia has never fully accepted the idea that Ukraine is an independent country and has... Uh, the international community, including the United States, has allowed the encroachment uh, onto Ukrainian territory and the creation of these uh, uh, kind of mini fake states along the uh, along the uh, in Donetsk and and um, and also the outright annexation of mm -hmm. Crimea. And the question is whether we're going to continue in a kind of Czechoslovakia way, just allow the, you know, the authoritarian uh, nearby power to carve up the state or whether we're not. That's mm -hmm. the second thing. And then the third thing that's at stake is how empowered uh, we want to let Vladimir Putin feel. And I, I, you know, if we let him get away with this, uh, that will that has very very grave implications for other states of the former Soviet Union, uh, including most importantly states that unlike Ukraine are NATO allies, like for example Estonia and Latvia and Lithuania. Well, both you and Colonel Vigman had predicted that Putin would try to test Biden on Ukraine sometime during his first year in office. I mean, you did you you did you did call this one, um, and, and, and we obviously were far from the yeah. only ones. I mean, yeah. I I I think. You know, anybody who spends time on uh, Russia, even casually, was expecting something like this to happen. So Biden is, is, of course, not threatening military action, but is laying out the possibility of economic sanctions. And they are considerable. They're, they're not just going through the motions. I mean, if if Putin invades Ukraine, the message seems to be, you know, forget about that Nord Stream gas pipeline to Europe. Um, you could also, uh, you know, Russia could also lose access to global capital markets. And also, I, I find this intriguing, cutting Russia off from the global financial uh, settlement system called SWIFT, which basically means they can't transfer money in and out of the country. They'd have to bring it in suitcases. Uh, so these things all have to have some weight with Vladimir Putin, who everyone seems to assume has not yet made a decision about what he's going to do. What do you think he's going to do? My my gut sense is that he wants to milk this. He wants to ra uh, you know rattle the sabers, but he doesn't really uh, want to plunge himself into a full-fledged crisis. So I tend to agree with that. I also think uh, uh, Alex uh, uh, made another really important point about leverage the U.S. has, which is, you know, we get to decide what we arm the Ukrainians with and what we don't. Hmm. And, um, and the Ukrainian military has become over the last 15, 20 years a quite capable force. It is not uh, a force on par with the with the Russian army, the, the old Red Army, but it is not a trivial force. 
And by making clear that we are prepared to arm the Ukrainians to the extent necessary, uh, it is in addition to all the financial side issues that you correctly mm-hmm. mentioned. And it is, by the way, very hard to run a state of the size of Russia without access to the international financial system. Right. It's, you know, we're not talking about Iran here. And we can also say that the cost to Russia will be very heavy in blood and treasure. And that, remember, the Afghans kept the Russians busy and uh, at very high stakes for a long time. And so, you know, we can communicate, and I'm sure, I hope, uh, that the president made this clear to Putin in their conversation yesterday, that you should not expect this to be like Georgia. Hmm. If you do this, we will make sure that there are, uh, that the Ukrainian army is well is well supplied and and is capable of defending itself. Uh, and I think if we don't do that, the message to the Baltic states, to Poland, and to other countries in the region who, with whom we do have treaty obligations would be devastating. Benjamin Wittes, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. We appreciate it. Uh, ben Wittes is the editor-in-chief of Lawfare, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and a Long-time favorite guest on the podcast. Good to have you back. Great to hear your voice, Charlie, and uh, and keep at it. You guys are doing so much great work. Well, thank you. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again. <laughs>